Welcome to Alumni Voices, a podcast from the University of Oxford. I'm Guy Collander and every month I speak to a former Oxford student about their memories of their university days, the impact of their studies and their career. Our interviewee this month is a distinguished journalist at the top of one of the world's leading news organisations. As editor of the Financial Times, Lionel Barber has helped transform the FT from a newspaper publisher into a multi-channel global news organisation. He joins us to cast his expert eye over fake news, financial news and the future of news in a digital age. We will also hear about how studying German and modern history at Oxford prepared him for his international career in journalism. Let's begin with the state of the media, uh, which is very much in flux. There are major concerns about fake news, social media, echo chambers. Debates continue about how to pay for quality journalism and the advantages, disadvantages of digital and print. There's also a great deal of news around at the moment from Brexit negotiations to Trump's latest tweets and North Korea's nuclear tests. What are your main preoccupations as the editor of the Financial Times? I think there are two phenomena which are um, prevalent today and really important. One is that we live in a world of alternative facts. Uh, where facts are subordinate to opinion. Uh, And I think that is something slightly new. I I sometimes blame the smartphone, which gives everybody an individual voice, Um, social media. But I also think that plays to the second phenomenon, which is fragmentation. Uh, In the old days, you had uh, newspapers and television. Now you have... um, all sorts of upstart brands, newcomers, um, and newspapers obviously in decline. So it's a fundamentally different landscape from the one I um, entered um, more than 35 years ago when I left Oxford. And it's all happening very quickly, people are uncertain as to the trends of the future. Well, we live in a world now where it's a genuine 24-hour news cycle. Uh, Again, in the old days, you could say, well, we turn off after midnight or just before midnight. Um, but now, uh, every, people have the ability to communicate, not just in terms of words, but also image and text and data. And it's all instant, instant insight, instantaneous. So the news cycle, in a way, has been crushed. Uh, and it's a very, very different world, uh, which is traveling at warp speed. And the news now, particularly with Twitter, the the medium is, is shaping the future of news, or de- developing news stories are changing quickly as a result of how they're reported in a way that wouldn't have happened in the past. In, in, in the old days, the, everything was a bit more considered. You'd be talking m- to multiple sources before um, publishing. Now, obviously, in a tweet, by the way, you've only got 140 characters in a tweet. Um, you can just put stuff out there and hope for autocorrection. Um, that's a dangerous thing. We don't do that at the Financial Times. But as I said, this is, this is a different world. It's fragmented and operating um, instantaneously. It makes it very dangerous, by the way, because you're not really sure what's true, what's rumor. That's been around before, but the line between fact, opinion, propaganda has become very blurred. 
and the FT is really embracing the digital revolution as well with FT.com winning the uh, website of the year award at the press awards earlier this year so FT traditionally known for being the, the salmon pink paper but really embracing digital outlets as well. Yeah, we fundamentally changed our business model. Um, I took over as editor in 2005 and we decided that we had to charge for content, number one. Uh, we also had to raise prices if we're a premium product. We, we, weren't, we wanted to differentiate ourselves and also we wanted to sell direct to business and not go through intermediaries. So that fundamentally changed the business model from being a newspaper to in effect a subscription business. You'll be talking about fake news in a post-facts era on Saturday the 16th of September during the alumni weekend in Oxford. How problematic is fake news? What sort of insights will you be sharing at that session? We do need to bear in mind the historical context. I mean, uh, fake news is a great term. It's a lovely, uh, it causes a lot of uh, excitement and interest. But actually we've had fake news as propaganda. It could be state propaganda, individual propaganda around. The difference, I think, is are the distribution channels. And the new technology makes it possible to spread false information in a much more effective way. I mean, far more effective than, say, mass communication in totalitarian regimes in the 1930s. Uh, there's been a technological leap um, in terms of targeting audience and distribution power. Uh, I think the, the other point is that it allows news organizations that are more rigorous to draw substantial benefits like as a brand and that's certainly where we want to position ourselves at the FT. I, I think I might have some fun as well just looking at you know what was fake news through the centuries and we've got a passage in Balzac's Lost Illusions, it's very necessary to do that kind of thing at Oxford bit of French literature. Indeed, indeed. And uh, that session's proving popular, but there's still places available. So if you're listening to this and haven't booked yet, please do so. Traditionally, August is the silly season for news, but that seems unlikely this year with such rapid developments in both uh, domestic and international politics. Looking at the UK and politics, do you think Theresa May's days are numbered? Well, it's obvious that her authority has been severely diminished, if not shattered, by uh, the decision first to call a snap election and then not pull off um, their hopeful bigger majority. She just about has a working majority in Parliament and she's facing the biggest and toughest negotiation for Britain in, in her generation. I wouldn't write her off though just yet because you have to have an obvious alternative and I think there may be lots of pretenders to the Crown uh, but no single obvious one. Brexit's also never far from the headlines. Given your years on the European beat as both Brussels bureau chief and European editor for the FT and your knowledge of the European psyche, what predictions are you prepared to make in terms of Brexit? Well, first of all, we in this country, in Britain, tend to see Brexit through purely the domestic telescope, so it's what we want and there's nowhere near enough attention paid to what the Europeans are willing to give us. This is going to be a one-sided negotiation. The Europeans hold most of the cards because, after all, we are leaving. We're the first country to leave in the history of the European Union, and the price is going to be high. The FT campaign for us to remain. We accept the vote. I think you're having a somewhat more sensible debate now from the British side about the terms of departure, that we can't just fall off a cliff edge. On the other hand, one, uh, 
it will be the Europeans who dictate ultimately the terms of departure, the bill for example, but also, and this is the big unknown, Parliament has to approve the final outcome, the final deal. And that will be very interesting to watch given the divisions within both major parties. You became editor of the FT, as you said, in 2005. And since then, you've interviewed many of the world's leaders in business and politics, including Barack Obama and Angela Merkel. What's been your most memorable interview and why? Well, I'm tempted to say in Bogota, uh, interviewing President Uribe uh, after heavy security and, and finally after four hours wait, seeing him and saying, if two terms were not good, was good enough for George Washington, why aren't they good enough for Alfonso Uribe? And he literally stood up, marched across the table, and I thought I was going to have my head knocked off, and he looked at me and then said with a smile, because I'm still looking for my Thomas Jeffersons. Right, perfect. <laughs> Marvellous. And but Donald Trump was a one-off. Right. I mean, it was like interviewing Tony Soprano. Um, and in the Oval Office, he was very disappointed that when he asked me, have you ever been here? And I said, yeah, I interviewed actually President George H.W. Bush in 1990 in the Oval Office, and it was a great manner. Um, but, but, you know, it was only 25 minutes long. It wasn't as long as Uribe or Merkel or the Chinese leaders and others I've done. But um, in terms of sheer theatre, I'd say Trump was pretty far up there. So now it gives you an insight to what he's doing now, having Very met much. the man and, and seeing yeah. how he operates. Your years as editor have certainly been eventful in terms of the news agenda, particularly with the, uh, the financial crash. How was it being at the helm of such a, an important news organisation, particularly in terms of the financial news at such a time? Yeah, I think uh, we had a very heavy responsibility um, in 2007 8 uh, when you had the most serious financial crisis in two generations. Um, we had to decide, you know. Were we going, how, how much panic was there? It's a word I banned. I think there was one day we allowed it in a headline because it really was because the system was in meltdown. But we also had, and I, I think this is important when I talk about responsibility, uh, we had to decide, well, was capitalism fatally flawed? Could we make the case for capitalism in a reform system? We had to make judgments about unconventional monetary policy, whether that was the right thing or it was going to inflate asset prices and, and uh, lead to inflation or actually whether we are in a new paradigm. All these big economic um, judgments were having to be made and political judgments. And I was fortunate having a very strong team around. And yeah, we won the newspaper of the year, uh, which was an accolade from our peers that year. So it was, it was an important time, exhausting but exhilarating time. But is there anything else that you'd like to add tips for well, young journalists? I think as a young journalist, it, there are two things I'd say. One is don't believe people who say journalism is somehow finished, there's no future. That's not true. The newspapers are very challenged, but they're just new forms of journalism. So journalists these days are not just people who write. They're, they need to be able to code, understand technology, be familiar with technology. They need to work on multiple platforms, so you know, podcasts video, use of data, writing. And lastly, you know, if you really want to be a good journalist and you really want to be a good writer, there are v you really have to put in the work and listen to people and practice and 
hone your skills and sometimes I think these days people think they can all be mini Mozarts where they're sort of composing beautifully uh, at uh, 21 and, and actually most of us including myself we're not Mozarts we're stonemasons we just work at the craft and you get better and better at and, and then lastly just stay curious now I'd like to change gear and ask about your university days. You read German and modern history at St Edmund Hall in the 1970s. What are your memories of studying and living in Oxford in those days? I did study and I loved my German tutor, Ken Seeger, who spoke German with a wonderful Viennese accent and taught me. He was a great tutor and there were other important uh, lecturers um, in Ger and German literature. I think the American constitutional uh, history that I did that paper was had an enormous um, impact on my thinking and my political beliefs. But I have to say, playing Cuppers Rugby at Teddy Hall in 1975-76 with people who'd won blues, that was the highlight of my time at Oxford. How far did you get uh, with your Teddy Hall teammates? Well, we got to the semi-finals in the first year when I, I was the only person in the back line that hadn't played for the Blues. And I had a blue scrum half uh, with me, so it was amazing. And the second year was stronger, even stronger team, and we won it. Um, I didn't play in the winning final. I played three games, and it was an honour to play. And frankly, I was touch judge. I was a bit disappointed not to get in, but you know, they, it was a very strong side. What did you learn from your studies that helped in your career? Well, speaking German fluently, and I did spend a year or eight months before going to Oxford in Munich, uh, working at Siemens, and then I took a year ab abroad in year three, all again speaking German uh, in Baden-Württemberg. That mastery of the German language, um, reading an enormous amount, speaking German all the time, proved really useful when I was in uh, both in Washington, the end of the Cold War, uh, German unification, and also in Brussels, because I was able to interview uh, people in German, Angela Merkel, Schroeder. It's, it really opened doors. And I think just coming away with um, an intellectual framework built around history. I did modern history, 19th, 20th century history, political theory as well. And what advice would you give to students or prospective students thinking about Oxford? If you get the chance to study at one of the best, and by the way, it isn't necessarily the best, there are a number of very good universities in this country. And I'd say two things. First of all, you know, don't put all the eggs in one basket, even if it's Oxford, because you set yourself up for such a disappointment. There are other places. On the other hand, if you actually get a place at Oxford, you receive a place, then you really need to make the most of it. You really need to, 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 to enjoy it in all the aspects, um, from the sporting life, or if you're not interested in sport, or societies and everything, but do a decent job on the academic side, because frankly, otherwise, somebody else should do it. Lionel Barber, thank you very much for sharing your experiences about your extraordinary career in journalism. For more episodes of Alumni Voices, please visit www.alumni.ox.ac.uk.